Podcast One. On episode 499, we meet entrepreneur, activist and founder of Outland Denim, James Bartle, who not long ago had absolutely no idea about fashion or how to produce it. Now his jeans are worn by the likes of Meghan Markle and Leonardo DiCaprio. Not bad for a bloke who wanted to be a cowboy. Yeah! Yeah, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show where successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Timbo And welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing for misfits. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You Infinitely more importantly, you're a motivated business owner and you're ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that's exactly why this podcast exists. But if that's not enough, you can grab a copy of my popular marketing book, The Boomerang Effect, that I wrote with you in mind over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Big episode today. In an incredibly candid chat, Outland Denim founder James Bartle shares how, with no fashion experience whatsoever, he's created a jeans brand that is stocked in some of the world's biggest department stores and worn by some of the world's biggest A-listers. This week's Monster Prize Draw winner, yes, we have one, is about to launch a business that I think will do unbelievably well, and I'll tell you why. Plus, a sneak peek into the upcoming 500th episode. As per usual, team, there's marketing G-O-L-D, dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Before we do get stuck in, just a quick check-in. I haven't been on air for a while and COVID-19 is all we're talking about. We're surrounded by many businesses doing it really hard right now. So I hope your business is doing okay. I hope you're doing okay. Most importantly, looking after yourself. And to that end, I have gone and set up the Small Business Big Marketing Tribe, which is a free Facebook group, laser-focused on helping you grow that beautiful business of yours, or at least kind of sustain it through these tough times and through some smart marketing discussion. It's going to be a place, or it is a place, where you can share your experiences, ask questions, and help other business owners in the areas of customer service, SEO, PPC, customer experience, websites, social media, any marketing-related topic we will be talking about in that group. It's myself and Lukey, my old co-host. He'll be in there most days answering questions. So search for Small Business Big Marketing Tribe on Facebook, and we'll see you inside. Righto, let's find out about today's guest. As you may know, I host another podcast called The Idea Exchange. It's a podcast that deep dives into the lives of Australian business founders and the stories and lessons learnt behind the empires they're building. Now, in season one, I have had some amazing chats with show pose Jane Liu, Carmen's Muesli's Carolyn Creswell, and thank you's Daniel Flynn, just to name a few, covering their views on money, growth, culture, and work-life balance. Now, every small business big marketing listener should subscribe. It's right up your alley. More recently, as part of the Idea Exchange series, I caught up with James Bartle. James is the founder of Outland Denim, which is a business disrupting the highly exploitative fashion industry. And as you're about to discover, James is on an absolute mission to curb the trafficking of young girls in this multi-billion dollar sex trade. In fact, he launched Outland Denim to create employment opportunities for women vulnerable to this exploitation and abuse. Now, 10 years on, the Outland brand can be found in some of the world's largest department stores. It employs over 100 women and is seen worn, how's this, by the likes of Meghan Markle and Leonardo DiCaprio. I caught up with this businessman on a mission at his Gold Coast Hinterland HQ for a pretty candid conversation, I've got to tell you, where he openly shares just how big an impact one film had on him, why he chose jeans as the way to address a global problem, why he went from being a not-for-profit business to a for-profit business, the impact celebrity endorsement has had on the brand, the power of being B Corp certified, plus he shares some really heart-touching stories of employee success. 
Here's James talking about why he chose to base his business in beautiful Mount Tambourine. I mean, where else would you want to operate a business from? Noosa? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why did you start a business up here? Well, look, I'm from the area and... Um, my family are from here and um, I spent a little bit of time in different areas. My wife was from Sydney and so when we got married, eventually we wanted to move back here and um, I didn't see a barrier for being able to operate an international business from here, especially in today's climate with technology and, you know, I think it gives you a different perspective on life when you're in this peaceful environment as well. No doubt. Uh, has, it, has it been a great decision? It has been a good decision. There's obviously logistically challenges with operating outside of a CBD, but I don't think any of them are big enough to um, change the way I'd do it again, you know. Mm. So you go and see a film one day 10 years ago, the Liam Neeson film yeah. Taken. Uh, explain the impact that movie had on you. Well, aside from being an incredible film, at the end there was some script that came up that said that these kinds of things still happen around the world where human beings are stolen and sold for sex or labour. And... I just remember just being rattled by it, leaving so angry and wanting to start some sort of vigilante to combat the issue. You know, I just couldn't believe that this was real in the in modern history. You know, how, are you how? like that as a person? Have you always been like that? Well, I'm a, I'm a bit of an extremist. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm all or nothing. And so, you know, if I want to do it, I'm going to do it, and I and I'm going to be committed to it. And you know, that was over ten years ago. So you walk out of that theatre, that cinema. Yeah. What did you do? Well, talked about it, um, you know, talked about being full of rage at those kinds of people. And I was talking, I was there with my wife and some friends and um, talked to my friend about it. And he was also moved by it. And, you know, how terrible is, what could we do? You know, imagine if those kinds of conversations, you know, could we hire ex SAS guys to go out there and start sorting this thing out for us? You know, you know, that's where you start. So you took the Liam Neeson yeah. character quite literally. <laughs> we, we did. We took it quite literally. You know, our wives were very quick to remind us we didn't have the same combat skills as him. So we uh, needed to find a different way of addressing the issue. They're good like that. Bring us back yes, to kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah, reality. That's right. So, so, okay. So you get your back up, you start talking about it, you generate ideas as to what we could do. These conversations have happened over many, you know, dinner parties and barbecues. You then took a step to turn this this solution, create a solution into reality. What what was that step? Well, look, it had been marinating for us, you know, for my wife and I, this this um, injustice that was going on for over long? a couple of years. Um, she's a journalist, keen researcher. She researched a lot. She was filtering out to me about what was really happening out there. And, you know, I just couldn't believe it still. Like every time it was shocking that this is a real thing that's happening and that the fashion industry kept coming up as well as a big part of the problem in the way that we exploit human beings. Um, a couple of years after watching the movie, I came into contact with a rescue agency that gave me the opportunity to travel through Southeast Asia with them to see the problem firsthand. And it was in Thailand that I saw a young teenage girl for sale. And that was the game changer. That was it for me. From that moment, I started on this journey. Explain that moment. And like you're walking through a, you're walking through a, a place that is somewhat normal or become normal where, you know, the sex trade, it was, it was Pattaya, a place called Walking Street. I was told it was the sex capital of the world. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't that impacted. Walking down it, people looked happy. It was a bit gross as in that, wow, people really have to do this for a living. But I wasn't really that impacted until we sort of walked out the end of it into sort of where it was um, less populated and um, saw a, a line of of girls standing there and one of them just looked really young and I asked the rescue agency representative, you know, um, what's the go with this little girl? And he said, James, if you were to really look everywhere, there's lots of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is 10 years ago, but mate, it's true. They're, they're everywhere. And I just, I still can't forget the look in her eyes, you know? I mean, I find it, find it emotional even now talking about mm -hmm. it just seeing how scared she was and knowing that, wow, um, her life potentially was only changing that night. She looked so scared that it could have been the first time that she was out there. And I wonder where her dad was or, you know, who was looking for her, who was wanting to help her. And it appeared by the, the industry walking around that nobody, you know, and I had two nieces at the time and, you know, you think you love them and you do you love them like your own and there'd be nothing that you wouldn't do for them and I just thought oh 
you know, Liam Neeson isn't out there looking for this goal and the problem is much deeper than this one little goal. The problem is massive. How big is it? It's a $150 billion industry. You know, it's a big, big, big industry. It's a similar size to the fashion industry. Um, you know, and um, unfortunately, the fashion industry is a massive contributor to the need for people to be exploited. And I believe that by using what we've been given here in, in, the, in a Western culture, meaning the riches that we've been given in that we have the ability to address certain issues like this, if we were to use our everyday products, what could the outcome be? What if the byproduct of that was freedom for people? What if it was there was an environmental aspect to that as well? And so I guess that's where it all started and, and, and we've evolved from there. Business for good, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So you come back, the rage is well and truly alight now. You've got, you've seen it, you, you can't not see it. No. And you need a business idea. You were uh, working in steel fabrication. Yeah. A bloke who didn't finish year 10. Yeah. Loves his motocross, but hasn't really got a direction in life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I was, was always very passionate about people, like wanting to somehow impact people. Um, so even through my freestyle motocross days, it was if I was doing a show, I wanted to be a part of encouraging people, you know. Um, so I guess that, that drive has always been there. But yeah, absolutely. My metal fabrication business was literally started to be able to back this to work, to fund it. That was just, it all of a sudden became a side hustle and not just a bit of absolutely. pocket money. Yeah. I've got to ask then, jeans, yeah. highly competitive, <laughs> hard to make, highly polluting and dominated by some pretty big brands. Yeah. Uh, and mate, you, you've got a bit of fashion sense, just, you know, First time meeting you, you know, <laughs> sharp looking fellow, but but why jeans? Well, that that comes back to my um, not finishing grade ten education, and I was highly uneducated as to what I was getting into, and um, found myself in this industry that you've just described so perfectly. You know, one of the worst is the dark side of fashion, mm. the pollution attached to it. You know, the social injustice attached to it, but also the most incredible product. If you were gonna change the world with any product, I genuinely believe that a denim jean is the ultimate product to change the world with. And there's a reason for it is that, like a song, they take you somewhere. When you have a beautiful pair of jeans, you never wanna throw them out. They remind you of an occasion, they absorb history, you know? And so I go, what else can speak to somebody as powerfully as a product like that? T-shirts we wear and use and throw away. They don't have the same meaning. You know, food, we eat, consume, it's gone. Um, but denim, jeans, we come into contact every single week with them. Um, and so it's a reminder of what it is we're fighting for. Are we a part of the problem or a part of the solution? Mm. And we wanted the byproduct of this particular product to be part of the solution. And I guess that's part of, of choosing denim, um, which is probably we, we grew into under the, the real depth of understanding here. So unlike many businesses, your product is a means to an end. Absolutely. It's not yeah. the end. No, no, no. Um, look, so success, therefore, is not necessarily a bottom line on the balance sheet. No, no way. I mean, that's part of success. No, it yeah. is, yeah. Um, look, what, what is success? It's measured in three ways. Um, that's what true sustainability is. It's measured on a social, environmental, and economic level. And if we're measuring those three things um, genuinely, and so when I say economic, I don't mean just economic, did it make a profit or not in the country that distributes your profits. I mean, did it have an economic impact at every level of where it was produced, your supply chain? And if it had an impact on all three of those things at every level of producing that product, you now have a sustainable product. And so that's our ultimate goal is if we could produce a product that leaves the world and the people in a better place as a result of being made and worn, then leaving it in a worse place, we've won. And that's what we're headed towards. So you come back from your trip, uh, fire in the belly, uh, it's jeans, it's denim, uh, Outland denim is born. It's a not for, it's a not for profit, it's a charity, essentially yeah. at, at, in its first iteration. What did, explain, what did year one look like? Oh man. Well, we started, we weren't calling it Outland Denim. We were, um, you know, running with this denim project where we were really proving the model. Did it work or did it not? Did it work on all these levels we've spoken about? But year one was ridiculous. It was, we bought some uh, foot pedal sewing machines. You know, we employed the first few ladies. Uh, are we in Mount Tambor? Sorry, sorry, we're, sorry in we're in Cambodia. We're in Cambodia. Yeah, we're in Cambodia working in conjunction with a non-government organization that specialized in the identification and rescue and then restoration process with these uh, survivors. 
Our job then was to come in and be able to offer the next part of the process, which is employment and professional development, and really then solidify, I guess, the sustainable aspect of employment for them and their families. That looked like foot pedal sewing machines. The irons we were using to be able to press the fabrics were putting hot coals in them for the heat. You know, it was very primitive. It was um, not how jeans are made, but they learned to make a pair of jeans with that one single needle sewing machine. And was it stupid? Yeah, it was. Um, wasn't the best way of doing it. But man, it forged out some character in our seamstresses and us. We learned heaps through that process. And I think learning to do things differently, and that was part of it, not just doing it. We could have Googled how to um, and, and then just replicated that. But we wanted to forge out a way that was different. The industry had proven it wasn't responsible anymore. Um, so we wanted to be able to change that. What's your mindset in year one? You, you're heading over... To, to Cambodia, I'm guessing mm. a country you, ha- you don't know a whole lot about. You no. haven't spent a whole lot of time there. That's right. You, you have a wife. Mm. She's back in Australia, I'm guessing, with her own career. Yeah, that's right. You are going over there. You're giving some women who would have found themselves or had found themselves in the sex trade a job and you're skilling them up. That's a good thing. Was, what, what was the business kind of mindset? Were you just happy to be doing what you were doing? Or were you thinking, okay, this is a stepping stone to creating a serious brand yeah, back in Australia? It's a really good question. Um, I wish I could sit here today and say there was this amazing strategy yeah. and that now we're playing that out. No, there wasn't. Um, it was really like um, I was moved by compassion and I knew that the solution was an economic one. I knew that and I knew it had to be born out of a beautiful product. And so I had absolute conviction on that but I had no idea on how to get there. And so we spun our wheels heaps. In those first years, we were just spinning our wheels and trying to work it out. But it also forged out some character that now plays a a real asset to us um, that when it doesn't look like it's possible, it is. Um, And I think, you know, now more than ever with world events, that's something that I'm not terrified by what's going on right now Mm -hmm. um, as a business. I know that there's going to be tough times, but all of those early years um, has set us up to be successful now. No doubt. No doubt. Wow. Mm. What a, <laughs> did you document that first year? I hope you had a camera crew following no, you. No, we didn't, unfortunately. Uh, so we are, we're going to cover the, the years in between, but I mean, just, just scope the size of the business now. In 2020, mm. nine years on. Yeah, well, now we've got 10 people employed here in our headquarters in Australia and we have um, approximately 100 staff in Cambodia with the two facilities that we own there. We've gone to producing, you know, around about 20,000 pairs of jeans and, you know, we're, we're scaling. That's still very small, um, but, but we're, we're scaling now quite quickly. Um, we've focused in the last year and a half on really solidifying our method, our business business model and, and the methods that we use to produce our products, but also have that kind of impact and not lose the impact on people or planet in the process of scaling. And so that's been one thing that's been questioned a lot. Well, how do you scale and maintain that kind of impact on people from vulnerable situations? Well, um, we've now been able to prove that to 100. Um, Our next milestone will be proving it at 300. um, And that's our next target. So explain the Outland Denim business model, James, uh, from a point of view of like it's sustainable fashion. Mm. Um, so how does the business run and, and how are you selling? Your wholesale, retail, yeah. online, offline? Well, I'm, I'm a big believer in using, you know, benefiting as many people as, as possible through your business. So that needs to start in who plants the seed of cotton to grow the fibres all the way through to when we hit our production facilities where we can have the greatest impact. And our business model or our social impact model is built on four major impact areas. And the first one is that we give opportunity to women that may not get it. It doesn't mean that they were exploited sexually. It might mean that they were exploited for labor. It might mean that they have a disability, they were just poor. Um, We're looking for vulnerable people that we can help and equip. So we give opportunity to them. They come in and get a living wage, which is different to minimum wage uh, a lot of the time, meaning that they can pay for their health care, they can save for the future, send their children to school, maybe go out for dinner on a Friday night and enjoy a lifestyle similar to ours. And then training. We train them in all aspects of the product. So it's very different to a manufacturing facility. Our goal is to equip them that they are not uh, dependent on us. They can become independent out there in the workforce. And so they become experts in producing a product and then education, and that will be around a range of things, but one of the most powerful is finance, earning more money than you've earned before. How do I manage that? How do I plan for the future? So basic 
you know, household budgeting or um, women's health issues or English. Um, and so a range of things. And the way we look at that is we want to plug the gaps that they've got uh, in, in, in a, the fastest possible way that we can. We probably take for granted all the things that we were just able to learn about. We're always being educated in, in the West um, on lots of these issues and they just missed out because of poverty. So our job is to really plug those holes. That's our social impact model. Environmentally, you know, we look at it and go, well, if it's exploring the planet, then we need to find a better way. And so we invest our profits and the money that we're generating into solving those issues. How do we create a product that doesn't damage the earth in any way? And I'm talking about when you ship that thing on this big ocean liner across to another country, that, that carbon that's being produced in that process how do we um, offset it? Offset, well, <clears throat> offset, or you know, how do we change? We're always looking. We're not there, mm. but I believe it's possible to actually turn consumerism into a, a nice word, a word that we see, relate as a positive yeah, thing. Yeah, got it. Um, and that, so that's really the the goal. And then you know, as far as you know, selling goes. I mean, we sell direct. We sell on marketplaces, and we sell wholesale. We're selling in the US. We've just launched with Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom. You know, we're just going into the UK with a digital presence and hopefully it'll be bricks and mortar soon. David Jones here in Australia. We've got amazing boutique retailers and we see a really positive or really powerful impact that they have on the business actually. And they get really good sales when they believe in the product and no believe doubt. in the, what's no behind doubt. it. So. I wish I had a sound effects button to just release the audience applause right now because what you just reeled off in terms of where you've got to is awesome. So oh, thank, already, thank already, you, already well done. What part of running the business do you find difficult? <laughs> well, where do I start? <laughs> I think I should read your book, Tim. Um, <laughs> um, uh, there's, there's so many areas. I, I think one of the greatest challenges I have is that you've got nearly like two mindsets. One is an impact mindset of the human and environmental impact we can have through the business, the others are commercial, and you've got to marry them both. One doesn't work without the other. And so I think it's that trying to merge the two mindsets into becoming naturally one. Um, and, and I think we're a long way down the road, but I find that really challenging. You want to, in a time like we're in right now, you want to be able to give everything you have away to those in need. Our retailers who are going to suffer, some will go under in this time. How do we support them? And as a business, use wisdom to go, we can do this without damaging that. Um, you know, we can stretch here, but not there. Um, it's those kinds of decisions where the compassionate side of you wants to just do everything. And then the other side of it's like, well, we, I, I've got a responsibility to our staff and here in Australia and those in Cambodia as well. Um, so it's those kinds of decisions that I, I find challenging. Despite your enthusiasm and love for what you do, has there been a moment where you or your wife have looked each other in the eye and lost faith in the idea? <laughs> Weekly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. You, you meant to say never. <laughs> no, not faith in the idea. Um, we've never lost faith in what could be or that, that this is going to be one of the most powerful movements in fashion um, and industry. In, and I'm not just referring to our business model, but the kind of business model that challenges the the um, inconsistencies of what brands preach and how they practice. We lose confidence in ourselves all the time. I struggle with having the confidence to lead the team. I struggle with having the confidence, have I, gosh, have I led people down the wrong path? You know, oh my gosh, like, is it, you know, the anxiety that comes on an anxious person by nature, but um, this journey has caused um, some of the most, definitely the most challenging moments of my life where I go, my family has to suffer for this. Um, they have to go without because of this. Um, and I believe like with every part of me that it's our responsibility to do it. So when it comes down to your own little girls having to go without so that someone else's little girls cannot, that becomes a really confronting moment and decision to make. And I find them really hard because my wife has left in Australia for six months of the year on her own a lot of the time looking after our two amazing little girls and, you know, sometimes can't pay the phone bill, you know, um, because business is like that. And so it's been those moments that have also made us. How do you reset? Man, resetting is, um, it's mindset, it's um, discipline and it's obedience. And if you allow yourself to go down the rabbit rabbit hole and um, find yourself in these dark places without using 
um, your intelligence to know that this is a bad place to be going and use some self-control mm. to not allow yourself to go there, um, then you will die. You won't be able to make it through. Um, but if you're able to see them as a benefit, these challenges as a benefit to you, as a learning um, for you and lean into it, um, you become stronger. And so over as the years go by, I'm not certainly not there, but I do now recognize that I can see them as a benefit, the challenges. I see what we're, what we're about to find ourselves in as far as you know, the challenges the economy is gonna face globally right now. Um, I see all of those moments as leading me to this point hmm. that I'm going to be able to get through because I was equipped for what we're about to face. Um, but that didn't happen because of an easy road, that happened because I didn't have money, I couldn't pay my phone bill. How do I get through, you know, and now we've got a big company with a lot of people that rely on it and those skills are going to be really valuable right now. Let's talk uh, money management, finances. Yeah. You side hustled and got the business off the ground. Mm. Uh, you then decided to seek some investors. Yeah. How, how long was that into launching Outland Denim? Uh, it was before I launched Outland Denim. So it was after that development um, process, uh, period of nearly six years. Um, so we'd proven all of these things on a um, impact level, which is what we've been about as a business. Um, we've never been revenue focused. Um, we're really just coming into that part of the business now to where we'll focus on that, which was a crazy strategy because- Well, so the investors, I mean, yeah. you're walking into rooms. So yeah. there's so many questions around the whole investment thing. I'm yeah. guessing you'd never pitched before. No. I, I'm guessing that it was really important to find investors that shared exactly the same values yeah. and ethics as you did yeah. and weren't just about the bottom line. Absolutely. So yeah, how, how did you navigate that? Well, I'll, I'll never forget the, the, the first investor that I got was absolutely um, 100% in line with what we we're trying to achieve and the impact we wanted to have. And, you know, I watched, um, it's their story to tell and I've encouraged them that they've sold out now and they've gone into other things, which is great, but I've always encouraged them to tell their story. It's the most powerful story of taking risks and being so obedient and wanting to, you know, um, use the resource they have to impact the world, but also with a very strong commercial element to that. And so the first pitch was to, to this amazing couple and um, they saw it at first and really I was just looking for their blessing to move into a for-profit model because they had donated some money early in the piece. And I said, this is what I want to do and this is why I want to do it. And they were right behind us and then invested in it. Now, once they saw the numbers, they invested in the forecasting what's possible because of what we've built so far. Um, and then we continued that um, line of thinking. Okay, as far as strategy goes and being able to build this to where we dream it will go, um, we can't focus on revenue. Revenue is just what the majority of companies do. That's going to come later. What we need to focus on is impact. How do we prove this to be the most unique, powerful business in the industry? And that's what we focused on. That can't just be a social impact. It has to be a proven social impact, but it has to be also an environmental one. And then once we've got those two things on a really powerful level to be industry leaders, how do we then prove that markets want it? We've just proven markets want it. We've opened the best retailers in Canada, the US and Australia. Um, and now we focus on revenue building, on sales and marketing. I, are, they, are they really, this, this couple, the yeah. first one you get in front of, are they really investors or are they philanthropists? No, they're investors. Right. Yeah. So they're looking for a return. Absolutely. Okay. No, if there's no return, then, uh, I mean, I loved his philosophy on it. Okay. Um, they're very generous um, people by nature. Absolutely. The more money they make, the more they can give away. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not going to give a return on this, we're not going to get a return and make money. Um, then, uh, you know. And, and was their philosophy to get in, help out, get out, move on to the next? Do uh, whatever needed to help us get there. Wow. And they And they absolutely did that. Um, you know, I'm really happy to say that they made really good returns on being a part of this as well. Um, how much did you raise in that initial f f round and how many investors? Well, I, I won't say exactly how much I raised in that because a lot of people will listen to this will know those people potentially. Um, yes, okay. But um, look, we've raised over $5 million to get to this point. Um, and, and where does that money go? It uh, goes into building impact, building, you know, so the, the cash burn, the cash burn, so impact. Uh, I mean, a great example is I employed a marketing person six months ago. Um, <laughs> You know, about time. Yeah, but again, it speaks to we're not here to build revenue yet. Mm. We're here to build the most powerful business in fashion. Mm -hmm. And so that means that we've got to 
innovate in a space where we don't even have a solution for some of these things. Mm. Um, on the social impact side, there's a lot of trial and error. It takes years to be able to say, what is the outcome of this kind of employment for somebody? And, and we've got the most incredible testimonies of how this business model gave them the ability to get themselves out of poverty, get their mm. families out of poverty. Um, but then going into having, I guess, being, I, I relate it to Tesla. You know, Tesla had this vision of creating this car that would operate in a completely different way to what we knew as normal. And I would say, we are that of fashion. Yes, there's lots of people innovating in the space and trying to you know, come up with different fabrics and engineering around that, absolutely. But we wanted to create a business model that addressed all of the issues, not one. Um, I don't believe you can say you care about the social impact if you don't, the environmental and vice versa. They're, they are one. Yeah, well, there's not a lot of innovation left in uh, jeans. You know, we can have a rip here or a bit of stonewash there. Yeah, but it's, no, the, it's the business model. It's the business model disrupt. Yeah, and and therefore we have we you know we've become industry leaders in the space um, because it was always about impact. And so now you think from a business point of view, um, just commercially, is this. Um, a solid strategy? I think so, because now we can go and open regions with the best retailers when that doesn't usually happen to a fashion brand um, without needing to show revenue. Mm. I don't need to show how many sales I've had. Our sales haven't been massive. They've been organic sales though. So all the sales we've had have just happened as a result of people wanting to get on board with this. Do, James, do you have hardened business people? Uh, maybe you avoid them because yeah. you know what they're going to say, but you're laughing. So I'm guessing you have where they look you in the eye and say, yeah. young man. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, you know yeah. what street this is going down. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my second biggest investor, I met him in New York. I was sitting at a, at a table at a WWD event and I went, you know, I was going to get all inspired by these incredible um, speakers speaking about fashion, the future of fashion. And I sat next to this guy and he's a Canadian guy. He said, oh, what are you doing? I was all, you know, excited to tell him what we did. And he, you know, looked at, looked at my jeans I was wearing. He said, that them? Yep, he felt. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's good. Well, um, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, but you and all your investors are going to lose all their money. Anyway, six months later, he became our second biggest investor. Oh, how? How does that come? He, he because kept an eye on you? you? You approached him and say, hey, listen, you know, yeah, yeah, what happened? Well, he watched, you know. Did he, he come back with his tail between his legs? Not at all. He's been an incredible asset to Good us. On him. Um, yeah, absolute legend. He and his wife used their business. Um, they've been in fashion for 30 years. And they watched what was happening. So what and did he see? Have you ever asked him what was that What well, was that moment? I wore him down. His wife, I could see, believed in it from the beginning. Yeah, there's something in this. She encouraged him to look and he said, look, jump on a plane, come over to Canada. I got there. He'd only ever seen the pair of jeans I was wearing. We threw a few pairs of jeans on the table and he goes, okay, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to put you in front of the best retailers in Canada. There's three of them. We went and we sat in. I'll never forget the first meeting. I mean, watch the Devil Wears Prada. You walk into this this room oh, and these guys come in. They're like, right, throw your jeans down. We'll give you 20 minutes. Oh, man, my knees are shaking. <laughs> like, I've got to make was this Was this fellow with you? Yeah, he was where He organised it. He was with me. And I also knew it knowing I wanted this money because I needed investors really badly. And... Um, Threw it on the table. These these amazing ladies who have who are still behind this brand to this day looked at the product, gave us advice. Your product's not there. It needs it needs work. But an hour over an hour later, they're there in tears about realizing the impact that their job can have on the world. And that's really where we connect people. You know, we connect the buyers to our seamstresses and the impact we can have in another country and our own, mm. all the way to the consumer being connected to it. And so we've seen retailers get on board because they know that they want to use this industry for good. Everyone wants to do that. We're unanimous in that. We just don't know how. You have this wonderful marketing asset that can't help the marketing guy coming out here, but uh, unlike many brands, jeans, whatever we're talking about, they don't have true story. They don't have authentic, genuine, ground zero story. Yeah. You do. Yeah. So imagine that meeting in Canada with that first set of buyers where you go, look, here's the jeans. Yeah, we've got studs and zips and it's yeah. whatever. I don't yeah. know the materials. <laughs> but that's one minute. Let, can I spend the other 19 minutes talking about the story? Absolutely. And, and that's what it was, yeah. right? That's, yeah. yeah. So there's no, such there's an no, no question. And I think um, the easiest way for me to put that is that Brands today need a story to stay alive. Totally. Um, but, you know, the difference with us is we're a story that attached to brand, not a brand that attached to story. 
and there's a massive difference. You've just commenced an equity crowdfunding campaign in the yeah. last few weeks. Yeah. Uh, what is that yeah. and, and why? <laughs> well, equity crowdfunding is, um, in my opinion, one of the, the, the best ways of raising capital for a consumer product-facing brand. What it means is that retail investors, meaning all of us, can have the opportunity to invest for as little in our campaign as $250 and own shares, real shares in the company, ownership in it, you know, voting rights in it and dividend rights in it. And to me, that speaks so clearly to the values of okay. our brand. Because it'd be a lot easier just finding another Canadian fellow and his well, wife we've already, to- Yes, we've already got, um, you know, there's definitely right. money out there for where the brand is at now and the success that we are having. Mm-hmm. But this was an easy decision to go, ultimately, this is where we want to go. 12 months ago, that was legislated here in Australia to be legal. So now we're, we're out there where we would say we want to be the people's brand. We want this brand to impact as many people as possible. And, you know, we have a $200 plus dollar gene. Not everybody can afford them. Mm. So we go, we believe this opens it up to a market where they can go, hey, I can't afford a $200 gene, but I can afford a $200, $250 investment. Um, How many individuals do you hope to come in at 250 bucks or thereabouts? Well, thousands. Thousands. Um, okay, so therefore it's actually, you're going to have thousands of brand ambassadors. Absolutely. So that's clever. Absolutely. I like that. So, so you know, the lifetime value of a um, brand ambassador sure. or an owner is, one, they'll probably now only buy Outland Denim. Uh, two, they are genuine ambassadors. And if we do a good job of keeping our owners, our shareholders um, informed about what's happening, um, the impact their money's having, good and bad, I believe that we are going to um, activate a community and I believe that the only way you change anything is through community and I also believe that the only way you sell anything is through community activations. It's the most powerful way we have of marketing anything today and so this is the most ultimate way of raising capital. What's the reaction? I think you've only had one or two information sessions so far, haven't you? We've had two information sessions so far and it was... um, to be honest, the first one was here on Tamri Mountain. It was a really wet, cold, windy night only a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I was so nervous. Like, I usually don't get that nervous to go to these things. But because it's your hometown, you know, it's your, you know half the people in the audience. And I thought no one's going to turn up. Well, you know, we had probably an additional 40% um, uh, people turn up on top of who had registered. And awesome. so we were just amazed. The room was full. We had to get more chairs. People had to stand. And we did, um, you know, an hour and a half event, which was amazing. We did the same in Melbourne. Um, the day after the government had just announced that there was, you know, gatherings over 500 had to cease. Um, our gathering was much smaller, but it, um, it people still came. Um, we had the most great crowd of people want to be involved. And in fact, what I would say is that we're still seeing people put an expression of interest in now when everybody is fearful of the economy crashing. And um, I think that speaks to the fact that we are a very different brand. And in fact, now more than ever, this is what is needed. And so I I don't see from a business point of view for us, um, yes, it'll hurt financially, but will it stop us? No, it'll make us stronger. Mm. Um, and so I think uh, that, you know, those that are wanting to invest are seeing the same thing and, and they're putting in, in their expression of interest to invest. You became a for-profit business only a few years into being a not-for-profit. Yeah. And I understand becoming B Corp certified gave you the confidence to do that. That's right. Yeah. Well, look, I'd all, I had a bit of a martyr's mentality, to be perfectly honest, and still probably have a tone of that. I there. think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I um, but I thought, oh, you know, for profit, you know, it's not pure. It's not. And um, someone once said to me that, you know, um, well, when you give, you know, your, the money away as a not for profit, whose money are you giving away? I'm giving everybody who's donated or everybody who's sort of treated us like a charity's money away, really. I'm just stewarding it. Okay, and when it's a for-profit and the money's actually yours, whose money are you giving away? And I went, oh. It was the first time it really started to ring true to me that by being a for-profit business and managing it well um, and responsibly, that it could be a more pure form of having impact. And then... I wasn't quite game to make the leap to for-profit um, until I came across B Corp. It wasn't um, legislated here in Australia at the time, and so I waited, and when it was, we became a B Corporation. It gave me the confidence to be- become a for-profit. Which is no mean feat. So no. Do you want to just briefly explain what it, what it means to become B Corp certified and the hoops you had to jump through? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's fantastic. One of the biggest advantages is it it, it highlights your weaknesses, um, and anybody who wants to be the best at what they do needs to know where they're weak. So that was a real benefit of um, going through that process. But yes, it's a it's a, um, a rigorous process to to get through and. We've, as a result of it, been able to improve a lot of what we've been able to do. But what it really does is it says to the world, hey, this company lives or operates to these standards um, and have a look at our standards and then look at how this company rates. And, you know, we were able to be rated in the top 10% of B Corps with our impact. You know, we were the first denim brand in Australia, one of only two denim brands to be a B Corp. And, you know, so we're really excited by what they do right behind the idea behind B Corp and think that it gives consumers um, confidence in you as a company that what we say... Do you really think is, so? Yeah, I do. Because I'm, I imagine if I walked out on the, any street, any yeah. high street, and said, hey, what's a B Corp? Yeah. Would you buy this product? It's B Corp certified, or this product it's not. Is a consumer really going to know? Okay, well, maybe not every consumer. Mm. It certainly impacts me, um, but I'm educated to it because I've been surrounded by it. Um, but I think it's getting out there as um, I, I get the comment a lot, oh, you're B Corp, you know, I'm like, oh, wait, you know what that is? You know, I, I think it's real. I mean, if I go to the bottle shop, I know that Stone and Wood's B Corp. They're like 20 bucks more per carton of beer, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> um, but do I want to buy Yeah, I've got to buy it. Quantify the success then, or can you quantify, is there a straight line between being B Corp certified and the, the any of the three bottom lines that you operate to? Yeah, there's yeah, absolutely. It's um, there's a direct correlation between nice. measuring those things, environmentally and socially, and how you know um, the, the policies, procedures we've got in place, how we manage waste. You know, what do we do with our rubbish in our office? You know, do we use a plastic pen? You know, like mm. just it goes into a lot of detail. And hey, we're not a perfect company. We've got a long way to go. We're just committed to becoming the best we can be in it. It would appear, James, that and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the B Corp certified companies, these uber socially aware businesses, are still in the minority. So what's what has to shift in order for them to become the majority? Is it just a generational thing where, you know, like 52-year-old Tim here with his, teen, with his kids who are between 9 and 23, are they the ones that are going to save the world and start all the B Corporations or...? No, I don't believe it's a generational thing. Um, I think we're all impacted by the events of our generation. For instance, you know, my grandfather being impacted by the war, therefore my parents being raised to be, you know, a byproduct of that and then us a byproduct of, you know, and it keeps on going. It's like a pendulum and it swings from one side to the other. And I think we're on a backswing of where for a moment we lost sight of the value on human life and um, community and environment and where it's not because of bad people at all. It's not. It's it's a it's a byproduct of what was experienced. And so on this backswing, it's brands like us. It's it's those B corporation companies that um, are committed to these things that are going to have the greatest commercial benefit as a result of the backswing. Um, so I think, you know. It also helps for those companies that is genuine, you know, and there is a big difference between if your leadership in the company is genuine about the things you say you stand for and those companies that say there's a marketing angle here. Um, I think as consumers today, we can smell it and we're now more motivated than ever before to align with brands that speak to our values, um, that give us the experience that we're looking for over wearing a brand for the sake of wearing a brand name. So you only employed your first marketing manager six months ago. I'm guessing prior to that, you yourself didn't run off and book some TV ads, magazine ads, billboards, some big Facebook advertising campaign. I'm guessing none of that's happened. So how does the Outland Denim brand get out there and why are people choosing it on the assumption that they majority haven't heard the story? Sure. Why are they, why are they choosing you? I know, I know the business is still small, so as yeah. long as everyone out there is wearing No, no, not at all. Yeah, no, we're a very but, small business. But how do you get it out there? Uh, uh, well, I'm just such a fan of, like, grassroots, guerrilla-style marketing. And when I say that, that means that I hope today when you leave, Tim, you're like, man, I'm going to have to buy those jeans, you know? Um, and you're obviously telling your audience about mm-hmm. this. And... You know, your audience will hear it and go, well, I trust him, so I'm going to check this out. Um, I think that is the greatest form of being able to have um, marketing impact or penetration into a market which is highly saturated and highly competitive. I would say that we 
uh, are getting the traction because of our genuine um, pursuit of change. And we all want to be a part of that. This is a very easy, practical way to be able to be a part of it. But then there's the product. None of this works without beautiful product. And so we had to focus on having the greatest product. And that means that the kinds of fabrics we use, the dyeing processes of vegetable or organic, you know, you feel the difference the moment you put them on. Mm-hmm. Um, the recovery in the fabrics for our skinny stretch denims, you know, that they don't go out of shape when you're sitting on an airplane for 14 hours and have to hop off at the other end. You know, it's, it's the attention to that kind of detail. I mean, we've evolved in our product over time to where you look at your old seasons, you go, oh, damn, I wish it wasn't in the market. I wish we could have all our new stuff. I'm looking at full 20 at the moment going, this is a, such a amazing product i want everyone to be in it right but being proud of your product being passionate about your product and product leading the way and and then the results of that product being everything that we've spoken about it's beautiful do you get scared james there's going to be a point in time you've got 100 staff in cambodia how many on the ground here you said 30 20 uh, sorry 10 10 here still a business where the founder the innovator can have direct impact do you get scared about a time when Dare I say you become more corporatized? <laughs> that excites me. <laughs> well, I imagine, it means you're growing, right? It means you're growing, but imagine coming in and, and you know, that you can say, hey, uh, finance is on track. Hey, are we good here? Yep, yep. Oh, if we're not, can you worry about that? Yeah. You know? You're asking yourself this, no one else. Exactly. Right? You yeah. know, I've got a great team and a good, good team of advisors around me as well. So, and I'm very fortunate to the caliber of those people. So, I guess there is always a part of you, it's like letting go of your own baby, you know, and there's, there's always that challenge. and. Um, you know, that comes into the personal development pride, you know, mm. I want to be known as that. I want to, you know, I, I want it to be known as the guy behind the scenes. So for the first number of years, I always look for somebody else to be the face of the brand. It's only in the last six to 12 months that I've been willing to step up into that position. And what, that was, was that, what was that about? False pride. A false pride where I was like, I don't want to be known as the guy oh, no, that's no. up the front. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm the humble guy working in the background, yeah. you know, no. And it's just silly. What a disservice you, you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a good friend of mine who said, um, you know, what are you worried about? And, and when we got to the crotch of it, you know, I said, I was worried about the people in Southeast Queensland that would judge me for being that guy. And he goes, and so how far are you prepared to go for those women that you care for over there? I said, I think I'd die for them. And he goes, but you're not willing to lose your pride in front of a few people in Southeast Queensland. Oh, I like and that, mate. Yeah, it was a game changer for me. And so it's still a challenge. I, I, if I speak to my phone with a little selfie video going, hey, I struggle. Mm-hmm. I really struggle to do it or put a post up on my Instagram about some success that the brand has had or, if my, you know, yeah. I struggle. But it all comes from a place of pride. It's unhealthy. Um, and so I've got to work through that and, and try and, you know, overcome it. Well, you are known as the bloke who created the jeans that have been worn by Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Meghan Markle. Now, I'm I don't think we've had Brad Pitt yet, but I, I, oh, I haven't. I, I did. I did read that. Maybe right, someone yeah, just yeah. put him in because of you know once well, upon a time, time in Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah. Like exactly. DiCaprio. Yeah. Uh, okay. So DiCaprio yeah. and Markle. Now, I'm guessing you didn't send them a pair and say, "Hey, would you wear them?" No. You were pleasantly surprised when Megan hopped off the plane in Australia. Huh. I don't yeah. know where you saw DiCaprio wear them. Yeah. Tell me about those moments and what does that kind of endorsement do for the brand? I feel a little emotional even telling you about this right now. You know, like the Meghan Markle impact on our brand was nothing short of miraculous. The fact that she would turn up here in Australia wearing our product, Unknown Denim Brand. You know, I know her good friend Jessica Moroni in Canada. Okay, probably so that was influential. was probably influential. Um, she's been an incredible support to our brand as well. But the fact that they would do their due diligence on us, that they would see whether they believe in in who we are and who we say we are, and then back it like that. That's one thing. What happens after she wears it is, I didn't think was a real thing. Um, you know, we've been taught, taught, told about the, you know, Markle sparkle and the effect that she has, and I didn't believe it. I was in Cambodia at the time. Um, I woke up in the morning, it's three hours behind Australia there. Um, my phone was full of Instagram phone calls, emails, like you name it. I've it got was there. Yeah, it was incredible. My brand manager was with me at the time, who was operating in, in our uh, managing our online sales. His phone would get a notification every time an online sale went off. We were sitting in a tuk tuk, driving out to our production facility, and just sitting there, letting this thing absorb in as to what has just happened. And his phone's going ding. Ding. Online sale. Online, Online sale. sale. And we're like, wow. But the media, 
And to this day, we still get media where it's rare she's mentioned for what she wears without our brand being mentioned alongside her. It's incredible. And I'm talking globally. I'm talking about the best publications from Vogue, Financial Review, like I'm talking, you know, Wall Street Journal. Like, so if you actually quantified the media coverage you had, it's it sort of sounds like it'd go into the millions of dollars. I was told by a journalist that had it, had looked at the impressions and she said that it'd be tens of millions tens of dollars. Tens of millions of dollars. Um, uh, yeah. you, you put on, am I right, in saying 46 That's new right. women at the Cambodian yeah. facility? Yeah. So a direct result of somebody who is genuine to care about these things. Um, we've seen from, you know, when she was a, a younger girl before she was a princess, before she was famous, caring about these social issues mm. to now becoming a famous actress, famous in her own right, to then marrying, you know, into the royal family, to have it expand her impact. And we are direct benefactors of that um, because we were able to expand our absolute heart of our mission, which is helping more people and 46 new roles were created as a direct result of her wearing the product. And, and the great news is she's now left the royal family and she can wear jeans a lot more often. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We both benefit again, yeah. And look, we've seen her continue to wear the product. And uh, then, and then you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio is, is just... Well, let's talk about the B-list. Yeah. We've talked about the A-list. What about DiCaprio? How well, he's, he's equally as um, influential, in, yes. not in the sales, but in a credibility way. Oh, environmentally, in social conscience. That's right. Big time. A lot of respect for the way, I mean, just watch his Instagram it's never about him it's never. about impact and so I respect him a lot for it his stylist reached out to, to us on Instagram and we thought it was a hoax um, you know and he went to wear our product and what do they reach out and say was, is it do you um, mind if Leonardo wears yeah. your jeans or could you send us a we're, pair of we're doing a doing a shoot what would you recommend for him and you know he goes and does this shoot and you know I, I had the opportunity to speak to the, the fashion editor of a um uh, magazine in New York and he goes I didn't even know who you guys were but then we're doing a photo shoot and Leonardo suggested that we should be using your jeans for it so yeah. like you know how does that happen it's all organic and and I go again I come back to Tesla Tesla built something so unique it completely disrupted a market we focused on impact we focused on foundations not revenue because that's not what in my opinion builds real lasting value lasting value is built in those foundations and so we focused on those things which gets those kinds of results where those kinds of a-list celebrities will come in and and they didn't charge us anything they've never asked a thing of us they've just backed us and invested in us and when i say invest in us by wearing our product you know giving us exposure like it's incredible i mean Meghan Markle, um you know edited uh some of the vogue uk <laughs> thing and puts our jeans in there yeah. of her picks yeah. you know like come Unreal. on real how would you describe the company's culture well i think culture is everything i think culture is what's going to set the trajectory of the future um for your business so you know we've seen a lot of different phases to the culture that's been created here but um, one thing that i've come to learn is that it needs to come through um the the i guess the lens of being a servant um how do i serve those who are working with me better. Um, and I gotta say here that, you know, I'm not always the best at that and I always need to, you know, work on it. Um, but then how do my staff serve, serve those that are working directly with them and all the way down to where we hit those that are on the floor making this product and how do we serve them and then how do they serve each other and really trying to generate a culture of pay it forward. I don't know if you've ever watched the pay it forward movie, but brilliant movie with a brilliant concept about, hey, you do me a favor, I don't owe you now, but I'm going to look for somebody else to pay that on to, you know? And so every time you do something nice to me, I'm going to find three people to do that to, you know? But you're just influenced by movies. Just you know, <laughs> do you go to the cinema when you need inspiration? Yeah, it's like, hey, look, I don't even have Netflix, so. <laughs> <laughs> like, I watch Taken, I get a business idea. Yeah. I watch Paid Forward, I get a way to run the business. It's yeah. fantastic. What a cheap form of inspiration and brainstorming. Yeah, I just think, you know, it, it speaks to, you know, my own moral compass of that. I think that we are here to serve each other. I think people... We often forget that, you know, the, the gift is in the giving, not the receiving. And if we give out of a heart of compassion and love for people, you know, it's it's really powerful. And, you know, the byproduct of that is is life changing, not just for those you, you're able to help or serve um, or be enjoy life with. But it, the impact on you is, is, is insane. What's the vibe like? Uh, I mean, I've, I'm sitting here in your head office in Australia. I met a couple of your staff on the way in. They've got the same glisten in their eyes as yeah. you have and I get it what's the vibe like in Cambodia at your factory yeah. because 
One part of me thinks it could be heavy because of where these ladies have come from, but I imagine it's very optimistic and fun. Yeah, I mean, look, you go through times, don't you, with business. When we're growing quickly, our culture sucked. Um, you know, we employed 46 new people. We're growing, we're growing, growing, and we're like, you Whoa. know, we became really unstable. Our culture slipped, um, and that was only a year and a half ago. How did you and know it slipped? What, did it, what does that look like? Oh, attitude. Oh. Attitude. Everyone's attitude, you know? Mine, everyone's. You know, we're all stressed. We're working so hard. Mm. And it only comes back to me and that I didn't mitigate those things. I wasn't experienced enough to, to know that that was coming, you know? So it was really coming back to culture and really resetting what that is, you know? What should our culture look like? What is the values that we hold dearest to us as a company? Being integrity and honesty and generosity. Um, those are the things that our company values that are built on. And so how do we display that and, and educate our staff on that that is what they're working within? And so that means that we love each other, support each other. Yeah, we have bad days, but we have lots of good ones. So the now if you walked into our production facilities, you walk into a completely different environment, which it was built on, um, where it is full of hope and um, love and support and excitement. And, you know, I guess there's entrepreneurs amongst our group of seamstresses that have been able to build homes and build rental homes and like incredible, credible stories. Tell us uh, my next question. Tell, uh, I'm sure there are so many stories, but what's one that comes to mind of a staff member and, you know, Tear up if you have to, mate. We, we've grown men, you know. But like, I, I'm As bird. you can tell, I'm really tough and I don't, I don't get worried. I'm not very passionate about this. But um, look, there's one story that Trump said every time. It was only three years into the start. And we really wanted to know, does this really work or does it not? Is it smoke and mirrors? And, you know, I remember talking to one of the first employees that we ever had and she still works with us now as a section leader. But she lived under a plastic sheet with her family her mum, her dad, her siblings. And she was able to herself, from her own hard work, build a home for them to live in. She was also able to, um, you know, and so when I say build a home, I mean, that means that mum, dad, siblings are no longer exposed to like monsoon season. And you imagine living under a sheet in monsoon season where it all floods and mosquitoes and all the challenges that come with that. So she's now the lady that has been able to completely change her family's life from a security safety point of view. She's also re-established this dignity that she believed she had lost, which um, is so sad because she's now the income earner. She's now the professional. She's worked hard. She's forged her own way. And we're at that point, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, you know, this is a career highlight. Like, yeah. how can it be better? And she went on to say, and I was able to buy my sister back from someone who had oh. owned her. Um, it sounds like a story. Mm. Um, it sounds like a movie. It's everyday life for people all the way around the world that live in these situations. And it's our job as the consumer, as the one buying those products to make sure that they're treated the right way. Because if we just offer the opportunity, that's all they need. They make the rest happen themselves. And so we've got so many of those stories of these massive feats changing the history of what it looked like to what it could be um, because of their own hard work and this business model, giving them the tools they need to do that, you know. Um, one one last story, because it's just insane, but, you know, 14-year-old girl stolen with her friend, trafficked into Malaysia, um, held as a slave in a garment factory where her friend then passed away because she got sick and no medical attention. Eventually, this girl gets rescued and now worked with us. And, you know, the difference in seeing that that's a reality for a 14, a little girl, to mm. what what can be now and seeing the hope she's now married she's you know um, just incredible to see like the transformation that can happen through employment mm. you where do you employ from uh, do you use still use the agency that set you up over in Cambodia to then source new staff we work with a number of agencies to be able to source new staff so that's um, non-government agencies that specialize in identification or rescue or the restoration process and so it's not just one, it's a number of them. They specialise in different areas. I mean, one of the agencies has come in and run a training program on what human trafficking looks like, what to look out for. We're in the middle of the um, the seminar and one of the ladies puts her hand up because that sounds like a family member. They then go and start doing their investigations into it and find this family member in Malaysia. Like, very real impact just by those educational sessions. Never knew what to look for. So, so I imagine bringing in new staff and... I, I, on another podcast I do, I interview Julie Mathers, who owns Flora and Fauna, which is the largest vegan uh, online store in the world. 
Uh, she makes a habit of employing people with physical and mental disabilities and mm-hmm. says the success that she has from it, albeit difficult at the start, yeah. is enormous. Yeah. I imagine the curve of getting someone up to speed as a, as a proper employee mm. who is looking after whatever they're there to look after would be quite long and take a bit of time? It does take time. It takes us about three years to get someone to where they can make a full wow. Um, It's expensive. You know, the moment they start working, they've got to be paid a living wage. That's where you start. You know, it's, it is an expensive way, but that's what people are buying. When they buy our product, they're buying that hope. They're buying that chance for somebody to completely change their they're life. They're paying three years of sunken costs. Absolutely. Getting someone up to speed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. James, I'm just going to finish off, and I already know the answer to this. We're going to talk about what we call the hybrid life or work-life balance. <laughs> the smile on your face tells me you have none. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. that true? Look, I'm getting better at it. You know, if you ask my wife this question, she'd say no, but I've got a long way to go, and I do. But I, you know, my dad said to me once, and I know we've all probably heard this one, but, um, you, know, you know, do what you love and you'll have, never have to work another day in your life. I never dreamed of being in fashion. You know, that... You know, I think it's a great industry. You know, I always thought I'd be a cowboy, actually, and um, I'm not. And I love what I do because I love the outcome of what I do. And so some days are really difficult, but I'm so inspired that it's sometimes hard to switch off. You know, you know those days where you can't wait to go to work because it's Monday morning. I've experienced those times throughout my career um, in this industry. Uh, but I also know the importance of being able to stop and reset um, so I can come back fresh and not burnt out is really important. And so now that I have two daughters, I really try hard on the weekends to set most of the weekend aside to be able to spend with them. The reality is there's always an email. There's always a phone call um, seven days a week. And um, I just see that as probably the stage of life I'm in. Um, but I just have to manage it around mm-hmm. my family. Mm-hmm. And they say work-life balance. You can look at it as, you know, is my day in balance or is it my, you know, my year in balance? You yeah. know, you might have a two-week trip to Cambodia and that's, that's right. out of balance in terms of family time. That's but right. maybe you come back and spend an equal amount of time with the kids. And I think there's a benefit in the fact that we do this. Look, our kids are learning yeah. um, about what's happening in the world. They're experiencing it firsthand on the ground in Cambodia mm-hmm. when we're there. We know we've got to so you travel with the family. Once we've spent three months there last awesome. year, I think it was. Or, what a great know, life um, experience. Incredible. And I just one story on that really quickly because yeah. I'm just so proud of my eldest daughter. Um, she's six now and you know we were coming back from dinner one night and there's this little girl rummaging through a bin and she says daddy what's she doing and I said oh darling you know not every little girl has somewhere to sleep at night and they don't have food and they most certainly don't have any toys and she's just thinking about this and we hop in the elevator we go up to in the lift up to the up to the room and um, she goes in she collects her toys and then we go back down find this little girl and gives her toys away, you know, and, 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 you know, you can tell now how much that means to me to see that happening in her, that I didn't have to prompt her. She doesn't have to be pushed. She has compassion. And now she's acting on it. Now, the next part of that journey is I'm not going to go and buy all these new toys for her. Now she gets to experience not having it so that someone else can and her seeing the joy and feeling the beauty in that was way greater than if I had gone and bought all these toys to replace. Um, and I just go, man, what a privilege it is to be able to expose my children to this reality of the world we live in as a, you know, we are globalised now as one big community and it's their responsibility to look out for whoever it is um, as mm-hmm. a privileged person in Australia. What do you do to switch off? I don't know how to entirely switch off, to be perfectly honest. Um I haven't worked that one out. I, I love mowing the lawn <laughs> and I love um, watering the vegetable garden, <laughs> weeding the vegetable garden. <laughs> That's about as good as it gets right now. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're both very meditative practices. Yeah. Keep it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least if you're mowing the lawn or doing the veggie garden. It's like That's straight true. lines. Yeah, it's like I just love being able to look at a straight line and go <laughs> at the end of it go, wow, they're nice and straight, you know. <laughs> I was lucky enough to do a back back uh, behind the scenes tour of Wimbledon Tennis Club last oh, year cool. and they were mowing Central oh, Court. Oh, man, yeah. Well, oh, my goodness. Isn't that a whole new level? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Smelled good. It yes, looked good. Yeah. The lines you've never seen straight no, lines. No, no. James Bartle, awesome story, buddy. Thank you uh, for starting Outland. Thank you for sharing the story. Thank you for your honesty, transparency. I wish you masses of success in the future for you and your team. Tim, thank you. I really appreciate that you'd have me on outlanddenim.com.au. Thanks, James. Thank you. Well, there you go. Outland Denim's James Bartle. What a 
good guy with a fantastic story. You'll find another 10 well-told business stories by subscribing to the Idea Exchange podcast on your favourite podcast app. Coming up, this week's Monster Prize Draw winner is about to launch a business that I think is going to hit a home run, and I'll explain why shortly. But right now, here's what grabbed my attention from that chat with James. Attention grabber number one. I love the fact that he was so moved by a global issue that he got off his ass and did something about it. Many of us talk about it including me, whereas James took action. Love it. Action creates reaction. Attention grabber number two. I love the idea of more businesses becoming B Corp certified. Now, not an easy process, but clearly well worth it. It's got to be good for business and good for the world. And attention grabber number three. I love the idea of his equity crowdfunding campaign. What a brilliant way to create thousands and thousands of brand ambassadors. And I know since recording that interview with James, it continues to go gangbusters despite the fact that he can't get around to each state and do his information sessions. That's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, be sure to block out some time and implement those ideas. Yes, indeedly, doodly, it's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is... Sophie Maguire of locusonline.com.au. And Sophie says in her email, Hey, Timbo, I'm just emailing in to let you know how much your podcast has helped me start my own business, an online e-commerce marketplace for local Australian products, typically handmade. Now, I said at the top of this show, this has got success written all over it. I'll tell you why. Amazon is one of those searches that doesn't have many matches against it. There's a lot of people looking for Australian products, particularly out of Asian countries, yet there's not a whole lot being delivered. So I think Locus Online's got a lot of success in store for it. Sophie goes on to say, I have taken away so many tips and tricks from my marketing, from your marketing discussions. I honestly don't know how I would have created this business without some of your amazing ideas. The biggest lesson learned was that my business is not meant for everyone one and that is completely okay. Being able to focus on my niche market is better than trying to be everything to everyone. That lesson she learned from the Seth Godin interview where uh, Seth said something about his wife's uh, gluten-free bakery business in New York that it's not for everyone but it might just be for you and he went on to say every business only needs 1,000 customers who absolutely love what you do so don't be scared to niche down team. Sophie goes on to say, my business is called Locus Online and we have an Instagram page up right now at locus.online. Soph, well done to you. Thank you for implementing. Thank you for listening. And as a result, you win a Bonjoro license, a copy of Jamie Mustard's book, The Iconist, a Flora and Fauna voucher, a Sendal voucher, a Lumber Punks voucher. Go and throw some axes indoors when you're up in Queensland sometimes. A Liars range of non-alcoholic spirits, valued at over 500 bucks alone. Some Mr. Lee's noodles, some tradies underwear, well, a voucher for some tradies undies, I should say. Promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes, which, which Google loves. Everyone else to enter, just send me an email to tim at timreed.com.au. Tell me one idea you've implemented and what impact it's had on your business. And if I read it out on air, you win. Righto, before we wrap things up, just a reminder that you'll find plenty more episodes on the Podcast One Australia app plus my entire archive full of ideas to grow your business over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're getting value from listening, and I hope you are, then don't keep it a secret. Be sure to let other business owners know about it. Coming up is episode 500, whoop, whoop, in which I'll answer a truckload of questions you've all sent in, give you an insight into the behind the scenes of this show, and maybe even tell you what's up for the next 500 episodes. <laughs> Makes me tired even thinking about that. This podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed. It was produced by Matt Dwyer. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Now get out there and take action. Listener.